So Isaiah calls us at the heart of the matter. Yes, he's prophesying about the Messiah. Yes, he's prophesying about uh, the issue of God's justice and mercy. And, and how are those going to be resolved? About Israel's unfaithfulness and even Judah's unfaithfulness, Jerusalem's unfaithfulness, and the sour grapes that come out of that. How are we going to deal with that? And how are we going to get from where Judah and Jerusalem and Zion are where they are in the late 700s B.C. to the time of the coming of the king? How are we possibly going to do that? How do we resolve God's righteousness and God's grace? Key issues, not just for biblical theology, but for you and me. How are we going to be saved? How do we even have a relationship with God? How do you deal with God's holy righteousness and God's grace? And how is God going to resolve those things? Isaiah is dealing with all this, but centrally, centrally. The central themes of Isaiah are God's holiness and God's glory. God's holiness and God's glory. And we're going to see that as we begin to look to that chapter from Isaiah that, frankly, well, there are a whole lot of chapters from Isaiah that if you don't know this chapter, you're basically missing the entire message of the Bible. But, but certainly in Isaiah chapter 6, if you, if you don't know that chapter, well, we're going to dig into it for a few Sundays. you got to know it. But uh, this is what the seraphim sing about God, that he's holy and that his glory is overwhelming and all-encompassing. And all the earth is full of his glory. So, as we look to our sermon today to crack open the door, our sermon today to begin this new year is, have a holy new year. I'm not talking about a temporal, human-level, happy new year, which everybody wants to wish you. I wish you. God calls us to a holy new year. Holy new year. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare to open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. You, O oh holy God, your will is for us to know you, to have a living, transforming relationship and life with you. And O oh God, we pray that you would circumcise our hearts and open our ears and our souls, open us and our families and our households and our way of living to your holy word and your holy way for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're gonna turn to some passages from the New Testament to begin today, and then we will make our way to Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know. I, I've got notes out for us to go through verse 3 of Isaiah 6. We, I don't know if we're going to make it. We may just end up in verse 1. It's, it's rich, and getting there is rich. Okay, so we're going to turn to three passages of Scripture. I'll read them in succession from the New Testament. From the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then to Paul, the apostle, from a really long sentence from Paul, just one little verse. Verse 4, the opening of verse 4. For he chose us, this is for God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did he choose us? Well, let's keep reading. So that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose you so that you should be holy and blameless before him. And then to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, and then verses 28 and 29. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So do you make New Year's resolutions? Do you make, New Year, do you make those New Year's revolution, re- resolutions that are supposed to be a, a revolution but turn out to be kind of a whimper that die away a few weeks in, a few months in? Regardless of whether in the past you've made resolutions and regardless of whether coming out of that globally disruptive 2020 and into this globally disrupted 2021, you've made resolutions or plans or not, let me put it to you this way, regardless, regardless of resolution. What should be your most important priority as a Christian. Christian, what should be your most important priority for yourself? And if you lead a household, if you have children, if you're married, for your household, for your spouse, for your children, for your grandchildren, what should you be pointing towards in this broken and fallen and sinful generation in which we are living in the world, and yes, in the United States of America. We live, among, we live among a sinful people. God and his word make clear his priority for us in this life, 
in between our salvation, in between his first coming and his return, in, in between now and when we die and see the Lord face to face. Hebrews 12, 14 puts it this way, strive for peace with everyone. Okay, you've probably heard that, you know, we're, okay, you just stop right there, pastor, that's enough. I mean, that's a challenge, but uh, strive for peace for everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I can't wait till I see the Lord. I'm just going to ask the Lord a bunch of questions, you know, because I just want to know this and that when I get... Uh, the Bible is directing us totally differently. Without holiness, you will not even see the Lord. For what does anyone in a fruitful relationship with God strive? Toward what should your daily schedule, I, I mean the way you organize your life, the way you direct your mind, the way you talk with other people, the way you frame out who you are, where should all that be going? And for your children and for your household. Holiness. Holiness in your soul, in your conduct and character, and in the souls and conduct and character of everyone in your household. The apostles, Peter and Paul, make this clear. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called you, Christian, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing along with your salvation. Why has he done that? Why has God done that? Peter says, as he has called you, is holy, you also must be holy in all, not just for an hour on Sunday, in all your conduct. Paul says, we should be holy and blameless before him. That's, that's why God called us, Ephesians 1.4. Now, none of us, let's be honest, in this life, in this flesh, is ever totally holy. Anybody already kind of checked that box? You there already? You don't need to hear any more from God on this? No, of course not. The gospel truth is, though, that we are not only saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, we are also being sanctified by the power of God and God's grace. As you've heard me preach before and as Reed put it very clearly in last Sunday's sermon from John 1.14, the get-out-of-jail card, the get-out-of-hell card, that's just, that's just one aspect of a much larger gospel of the holy kingdom and communion to which we are called in God. It's not just like, well, you know what, we got you out of jail, now just go kind of wander around and do drugs or do whatever you want to or just kind of indulge yourself for the rest of your life because we got you out of jail. That is not the purpose of the gospel. That is simply one aspect of a much larger story, a much higher calling that we have to be in holy communion with the holy God. After all, think about this. What is our primary and highest purpose? What did we just say in the worship service? To glorify God, right? Let's just stop right there. How can we possibly glorify God if we're totally unholy? Does that make sense? No, of course not. To even begin to glorify God, we must be growing in holiness. Now, he's going to do it. It's his grace working through us, but we must open ourselves as vessels to that. And then think about this. And to enjoy him forever, 
Do people who are totally absorbed in their sin like hanging out with people who aren't into their sin? Do addicts who like to line up like hanging out with people who are totally clean? No. It's like the old jokes about people like, oh, I want to be in hell because that's where all my friends are going to be partying. Well, hell's not going to be like that. But obviously, if that's your orientation, could you possibly enjoy being around a holy God? No, of course not. It is one of these challenges that Presbyterians and children often ask me, How, what, what does this mean to enjoy God? Well, part of enjoying God would be obviously we would be transformed more and more to be like him and to appreciate and enjoy his holy character and who he is is holy no one's ever going to see God without holiness now here we have this problem if you go around if you walk out of the sanctuary and start talking to other people about holiness they're going to think you're a fanatic right they're going to, the weird, holiness is weird language. We have other ways of, you know, virtue signaling in 2021 in our culture. The concept of holiness is foreign and bizarre to most people in our culture. Six years ago, the Barna Group found that the concept of holiness baffles most Americans. This is six years ago. I can't imagine what it'd be now heading into 2021. When Barna asked Americans to describe what it means to be holy, the most common reply was, I don't know. Christian, do you know what it is to be holy? Well, we're going to dig into that with Isaiah this year. Okay, what about evangelical Christians? How did they respond to Barna? Of those who identified themselves as born-again Christians, I mean, these are people who are talking about being seriously Christian, born-again Christian. Only 46%, this is six, seven years ago, even then, already a minority, only 46% believed that God calls us to holiness. Now, you know the right answer, even from one of those three verses or passages I just read, right? Does God call us to holiness? Absolutely. It's the whole message of the Bible. The Barna study concluded the results portray a large body of Christians who attend church and read the Bible, but do not understand the significance of holiness. Do not personally desire to be holy. Do not even personally desire to be holy. And therefore do little, if anything, to pursue holiness. This is an extensive Barna study six, seven years ago. So here's the reality again. We live among a people, most of whom, even to the extent they acknowledge God, want to speak of God only as loving and in the sense of a permissive, feel-good, mushy God who gives me what I want and I get mad at him and may reject him or turn him aside if anything ever goes wrong in my life, if any of my loved ones ever get sick or die when I told God, no, don't let that happen. If God doesn't let me boss him around, then I'm out of it. I didn't like what that person said. I didn't like what that preacher said. I didn't like what my sixth grade Christian Sunday school teacher said, so I'm out, God. I didn't like the way you made me lose that job or that marriage or that that loved one. So I'm calling you under judgment, God. This This is the people with whom we primarily live in this age. And in fact, if we follow much mainstream Christianity, 
It's highlighting our versions of what we want out of God and what we want out of worship. Does it keep my children entertained? Are the teenagers still coming and like the smoke and mirrors and music enough? Is my spouse, who's not really a Christian and not sure he believes, am am I keeping him engaged and does he think the pastor and the elders are kind of nice people so he'll hang around a few more weeks? (laughs) That is not holiness. But, But a lot of church business is run like that. Not just by the ministerial leadership, but by the folks who call themselves dedicated Christians. The primary and highest end, what is it? to glorify us and enjoy our families and what we like to do forever. That's the creed of this age. What is our primary and chief end, our highest end? To to glorify ourselves and our children and grandchildren and enjoy the people we like and doing what we like forever. And God, if you mess that up, I'm out of it, okay? You better not mess any of my stuff up. Here's the good news invitation. The Holy One of Israel has come to us in Jesus Christ. We remember that good news here every week, but certainly on Epiphany Sunday. And the Holy God is calling you into holy communion with himself. But that's a serious communion. It's an all or nothing communion. And it's going to take you where you've never been before. To come before God with reverence. God who is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. John Calvin says that nearly all wisdom we possess, great opening line from the Institutes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consist of two parts, knowing God and knowing ourselves. We're going to talk about that today and in the coming Sundays as we turn to Isaiah. As I've already said, Isaiah gives us, and let me just clarify, I'm really excited about the book of Isaiah, really the fullest and deepest extent of biblical theology really in the entire Old Testament, perhaps short of the Psalms. It's no accident that, of course, I emphasized the Psalms last year, and particularly in our Wednesday night studies. Psalms, most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Second most quoted book, guess what? Can anybody guess, based on what I'm talking about today? Isaiah. And we've got this issue that we'll come back to a whole lot that God calls his people to serve him. The holy God calls his people to serve him. God called and set apart, set apart as holy unto himself, Israel to serve him. But the first five chapters of Isaiah and certainly most of the rest of the book make it clear that Israel and even specifically Judah itself and Jerusalem are not serving the Lord. Sour grapes, bogus, bogus. Isaiah chapter 6 focuses in on the, the highest point of his calling. I'm not sure this is the only juncture of his calling. I, I believe he was already in ministry before this, if you go back to 1-1. But, but nevertheless, this high point of 6, and he's called, Isaiah's called, to be the servant. But it's a hard service. But all of that is pointing to the ultimate servant. In the second half of Isaiah, 
we begin to see more and more who this child born to us is as the servant who will die for our sins and bring us in righteousness to holy communion with God. The big, big, big themes. And in the midst of this, Isaiah is a prophet of the Holy One of Israel. Kadosh, Israel. That term, and I'm going to go ahead and, and couple it with, there's, there's, uh, he, Isaiah uses the term, uh, the Holy One of Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel, okay? Thirty-three times that term is used in the Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel slash Jacob. Twenty-six times in the book of Isaiah. Twenty-seven times for Isaiah because in, in 2 Kings 19, they're quoting Isaiah. So think about that. This high term of God, the Holy One of Israel, 27 of the 33 times we see that term in the entire Old Testament, it's Isaiah. You think Isaiah is serious about holiness? Oh, yeah. Is he serious about a holy God? Oh, yeah, the Holy One of Israel. And notice how that term Come back to this now in later Sundays, but notice how that term speaks to the transcendence of God, holy, right? Totally other, totally divine, but also his eminence, his willing to be coupled with the people, the Holy One of Israel. And as I just said, when Isaiah is using that term, Israel ain't much stuff, right? Israel is a mess. But God, nevertheless, is the Holy One of Israel. Transcendent and imminent. And ultimately, we're going to see that in the Messiah who comes as, oh yeah, it's no accident, we'll come back to this too. But the last little line of Isaiah 6, when we're talking about the first glimmer of the Messiah, okay, first glimmer of the Messiah, the remnant down to the stump And who is the Messiah? He is Zerah Kodesh, the holy seed. Not just seed, not just seed like back in Genesis, right? Three, okay, holy seed. Holy seed, that's who Jesus is. So now, let's move into Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Adonai, not Yahweh here, Adonai. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, exalted on high, and and lifted up. And the hem, the hem of his robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, strong, administratively gifted king of Judah, southern kingdom of Judah. We'll go back into this more. You can learn more about with me on Wednesday nights a couple times. We'll do some more history on this. But remember, split kingdoms, right? So southern kingdom of Judah. Uzziah, king of Judah in Jerusalem for 52 years. 52 years. 
Assyria had threatened Israel and also by extension Judah back in the previous century. But in this eighth century, for most of the eighth century, we have Uzziah ascending and becoming co-regent when he's 16, rules for 52 years. A lot of stability there. And let me, let me give you um, what Derek Kidner says about this. In 740, the death of King Uzziah marked the end of an Indian summer in which Judah and Israel had enjoyed some 50 years respite from large-scale aggression. This soon would only be a memory. The rest of the century was dominated by predatory Assyrian kings, beginning with Tiglath-Pileser III. After a couple kings who were not aggressive, he comes on hard when he accedes to the throne okay, of the Assyrians in 745. So this is already rumbling as Uzziah is dying. In 735, Jerusalem is five years after what, uh, what Isaiah is talking about. 735, five years after Uzziah dies, Jerusalem felt the shock of Assyria's approach when the armies of Israel and Syria arrived to force King Ahaz into an anti-Assyrian coalition. Israel's confrontation of the king brought to light the real issue of this period, the choice between faith and desperate alliances. The king's decision to stake all, not on God, but on Assyria itself, against Damascus or, or Syria. Remember, Assyria is different from Syria, okay? With Syria... And Israel, breathing down his throat, Ahaz goes with Assyria, and he becomes a vassal king under the Assyrians in 735. In a matter of years, right? Eight years after Uzziah dies, Damascus goes down. Syria goes down. Because Assyria, the big kingdom, right, wants to head all the way down to Egypt. And they're coming through Palestine. In 722... Samaria, the kingdom capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, is taken out. And Israel's gone. The northern ten tribes, they're dispersed. And that kingdom never emerges again. I mean, 17, 18 years after Uzziah died, as Kidner puts it, it really was an Indian summer before the hard winter um, when Uzziah Rule. So back to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, at this huge turning point of history, we're not looking up to Uzziah anymore, are we? Because he's dying and he's dead. I saw Adonai, the real sovereign. And let me get really personal and very specific here. Which Uzziah do you need to die so that you will start looking up to God? Judah and Jerusalem were counting on good old Uzziah. You know, even though he had the leprosy and even though he had been bad, you know, offering the incense in the temple in 750, he was still stability. I talk to a lot of folks, and I'm tempted this way too, I will confess it, to think that this president or that president is going to save or doom our country. 
and this president and that leader of the UN or whatever is the answer, and this, this medical expert, Uzziah died. Let me be very clear. Uzziah is not the king. That's what this verse is. That's what this passage is talking about. You get it? When Uzziah was finally off the throne, Isaiah could actually look up and see the real king. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) If you're looking at people and human institutions, you're never even going to begin to look up at the holy God. Who's your Uzziah? Who are your Uzziahs? They need to get off the throne. Are they going to have to die? Is everything going to have to collapse for you to begin to look up to God, or will you go ahead and do it now? I I mean, it could be just a matter of years, friends. You know, a matter of years. It was in this case. I saw the Lord. Now, clarification here. The rest of the, the Bible is correct. You know, the Bible on the one hand talks about people, like in this case, seeing the Lord. But on the other hand, you, you can't really see the Lord. Well, it's both hand. Do you see the sun? You see the sun? Yeah, I can see the sun. Am I staring up at the sun and giving you descriptions? I'll be blind really fast, right? That's kind of the way it is in the Bible with seeing God. And you notice, you do not get a description here of God, really. There's no description of God broad description, no specificity. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. He's on the throne, exalted and on high. And what am I going to talk about? The hem of his garment, (laughs) which fills the whole temple. 75 feet high in this case, if we're talking about the real temple. Yeah, Herod's was 82 and a half, as you heard me preach a few weeks ago. But this temple, 75 feet high. The hem, the hem of his garment fills the whole temple. I mean, we don't, yeah, you you understand. And and I'm sitting here describing the hem of his garment. That's, That's seeing the Lord, right? No one actually sees the Lord face to face in his full glory. He gives us little glimpses, but even a little glimpse changes your life as it did with Isaiah. Um, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he, this is talking about individual seraphs. Uh, With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So you got three sets of wings. Okay. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This time, yeah, it's Yahweh, and it's Yahweh Sabaoth, God who rules the heavenly armies. Remember how Jesus in Gethsemane said, Peter, no, 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 put up your sword. If I wanted to call down a legion of angels, I could do it in a snap. This is, this is who this is. He's not just holy, he rules the heavenly armies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Above him stood the seraphim. Uh, Only time in the Bible, seraphs. Name means burning ones, burning ones. 
in the presence of God who is a consuming fire. Three sets of wings covering the feet, indicating their, you know, before the creator, the creatures cover their creatureliness and also acknowledge that he's the one who directs their feet, not them. Covers their eyes because they're certainly not sitting there staring at God, right? And then two sets, or a set of two wings to fly. He's seated and ruling. They are swirling about him constantly in motion. That's the way the Hebrew indicates. And what do they say? One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Semitic triplet. You get this occasionally. Two times in the Hebrew means superlative, means really underline this, means, man, big exclamation points. Three times you only get occasionally. And with God, with reverence to God, only once. With holiness. Because what is the central thing about God? He is holy, holy, holy. You go over the flip side of this, you go over to Ezekiel with the Semitic uh, triplet, and in Ezekiel 21, 27, he's saying, ruin, 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 talking about judgment on, on God's people. But, but here it's God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's the most important central thing you can know about God? He is holy. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And glory here means weight, heaviness. Now, he's high and lifted up, right? High and lifted up. Real quickly, I'll have to come back to this because I do want to move very quickly now. But let me give you, and we've got these on slides, this term, high and lifted up, it occurs three times in the book of Isaiah. Three times in the book of Isaiah. And twice, it's with reference to the holy God. And once, the third time, it is with reference to the servant who dies for our sins, who's pierced for our transgressions. You think Isaiah is saying something about how holy the servant is? Yeah. By the way, note, holy, 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 right? God in three persons, blessed trinity, right? Okay. And here, let me just go ahead and take you here. We'll come back to this uh, maybe next time. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold my servant. Now, this is beginning the song in which Jesus is going to die for our sins like a lamb led to slaughter. He is going to be afflicted for our transgressions, pierced for our transgressions. This is, this is the song here, okay? So, Isaiah 15, 15, excuse me, Isaiah 52, 13, beginning it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be Ram Vanisa, same as holy God in Isaiah 6. He, the servant, shall be high and lifted up. Isaiah 52, 13. The servant who dies for your sins. And then 57, 15, the other of the three occurrences of this term for God, high and lifted up. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I want to give you the invitation from God as we close today. 
I dwell in the high and holy place. There it is the third time. Here's who the holy God is, but here's his invitation. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Oh, my beloved, if you will come humbly to the one who is high and lifted up, he will be with you also in your worst moments, in your hardest, most desperate situations. The one who is high and lifted up also dwells with those who come to him with a humble spirit and contrite heart. And how do we get from one to the other? How are we going to navigate from the holy God of Isaiah 6 to the holy one of Isaiah 57? It's through the servant of the servant song of 52 and 53. Do you hear what I'm saying? The servant who was pierced for your transgressions is high and lifted up with him, but he comes low to bring you home to the Father. That's holiness. That's glory. And that's the way you can enjoy him forever. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He is holy, but he dwells also with you who are humble of heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.